0: And I were just talking a little bit before the talk here, and I asked her if she could tell how long we've been here. <laughs> <laughs> I said, your choices are three days, one week, or one month. <laughs> yeah. and she couldn't tell. <laughs> so, I can't tell either. <laughs>
1: we spent a month here. We taught our first month on retreat in uh, September and part of October, so feel like it's just a continuation of that.
2: <laughs> like, did we actually leave?
0: <laughs> so there are so four people from that retreat here, so yeah. it, it helps confirm that we're all just hanging around. <laughs> mm,
1: so we thought we'd start off tonight by just checking in and seeing if anyone has comments or questions or anything to share about... Mudita and the gratitude practice.
3: Yeah, Andrew. So my my ship of Mudita was standing along nicely until I ran aground on a particular set of people, I guess. Mm -hmm. These are difficult people whose happiness, at least in the instances I was considering, was derived from something that was not very skillful or perhaps even sort of twisted. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if... um, the sort of diminishment of mudita is because of my seeing judgment of that or that the heart really isn't supposed to wrap itself around a joy that comes from something that isn't real. something like that. Mm-hmm. I remember your example of the politicians and their real joy at something you might not agree with, but this seems different. Like somebody whose joy comes from malicious gossip. Okay.
1: Uh-huh, yeah, yeah that's a good question. So he's asking about uh, he, he sort of things were going well with mudita until he got to a uh, situation where somebody's joy came from something really kind of twisted or unwholesome yeah yeah well that's that's a hard one mm-hmm. and um, so I, I was this one of the difficult people or
3: yeah. It's uh-huh. somebody I don't have a lot of contact with. Well, a couple of different people, but I don't really know much about them except these interactions. that the general character does something unpleasant, mm-hmm. or you mentioned, you know, people in the world like ISIS or something, you
1: know, right? Yeah, sure. like should we feel mudita for ISIS torturing <coughs> people or something like that? You know, yeah, that'd be a hard one. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, well we I think
0: with the, the other question here we need to include is what's wholesome and what's unwholesome joy. Mm-hmm. And really, we want to resonate, yeah. we want to be in contact with wholesome joy. Mm-hmm. So if someone is deriving pleasure from uh, throwing orphans out of the orphanage, we really don't want to be mm-hmm. feeling meditative for them, it, you know, and, and yeah, there's a certain judgment, but we could also call it a discerning wisdom,
2: mm-hmm.
0: to say it's just unwholesome, there's, there's not many ways to approach it other than that. So, so typically we want to find, and we weren't terribly clear on this, but it's a good point, that we want to resonate with the, the wholesome joy. And so a difficult person, you may find a lot of joy they have in unwholesomeness, but you want to see, like for example, even someone like a member of ISIS, they might love the mother, they might love their children. And so there's a way you might get in contact with some joy even that person would have <coughs> From the wholesomeness of just loving their, <coughs> their relative.
3: Okay. And then it started to unravel a bit because it felt like a lot of the joy that feels wholesome is based on something that's kind of deluded or illusory anyway.
0: Right. But. Yes, so it came unraveled because yeah. the, the joy seemed to be around some, in relation to something illusory. Right, right. It was right.
3: Authentic joy, but, you know, because they did really well on a test or something that's, I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. But it got a little tricky to.
0: Yeah, and this is part of the practice too, is, is finding situations where we get confounded and then coming back with some wisdom to examine and figure out. And then next time we go on into that practice, we'll have a little more discernment about how to navigate. So, okay. yeah, overall, it's a good thing because you, you learn. I mean, you had a, a good, it disrupted your practice, but you've also learned something now where you have more grounding when you go back in.
1: When when you consider the difficult people that you're talking about, is is there anything you can be in touch with that um, that I mean? Sometimes we just don't know really what brings somebody happiness or what good fortune mm-hmm. they're having. But is there anything? Available that yeah. would be in a different category in your well, perception. I mean,
3: it became kind of like a practice of counting someone else's blessings. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you should probably love your husband. I bet you do. I'm happy that you are happy with your husband. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sure, but it seemed reasonable. Right. Yeah. And
1: well, this is part of it. Yeah. You kind of you're kind of making it up a little bit. <laughs> right. But the the idea isn't. Um, We don't have to really know for sure. The idea is more that, like with a difficult person, really with Mudita, the hardest place is when we have envy or jealousy coming up, more than with a difficult person. Like we have a neighbor who was one of my neutral people that was in, um, uh, let's see, what was he? Anyway, he was in, he's one of the neutral people because I don't know him very well. But he has a lot of cars that are, he likes antique cars. And he does a lot of things like revving the engines for a long time during the day and other things that are, you know, most of the neighbors find kind of annoying. I mean, it's not a huge deal, but um, there's a way where I could sort of, I could really see how he gets so much joy out of this. You know, and so that's a little bit on the borderline of, you know, he's not really harming anybody, but it is something that kind of sometimes rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So, but there's a way where my hope would be that next time he does that, maybe it will be more neutral for me, or um, if I am around him, I can actually have something, a positive connection with him. So, I mean, like with Mudita and the difficult person, it's not so much the content Um, as it is feeling more neutrality towards the difficult person. So that's where we can't, sometimes we can't really know for sure, but there's still a way to be able to work with it. We can't know what really brings them joy.
0: And it's important to remember all the Brahma Vihara's, these are about your practice. So it's impacting your true nature, the heart of your true nature, so whether it's really true about whether this person loves their wife or husband, in some ways it's not even that important. It's really how is it impacting you? How are you relating to it? And it, with your own wholesomeness as sort of a filter. So ultimately that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it sounds <laughs> skillful, yeah, what you've worked with. Work,
2: oh. Oops. <laughs>
0: Good, Kathleen. Is that anyone calling on? Go ahead. Great. Yeah,
4: so I found uh, it very difficult. And it uh, <clears throat> seems that I'm much more attuned to people suffering uh, than their joy. It's much easier somehow to find that or, or, you know, the initial meta. And so, because a lot of the time, you no, know, unless it was somebody that was quite close to me, it was just a really... My imagination about what I enjoy, and so I found to have that as an object of concentration was also difficult because uh, there was sometimes, often, there was nothing to come back to to ground myself. So it was a it was an interesting exercise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't know if I have a question, but uh, you know, it was all over the place, really. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, trying to find a skillful means to stay concentrated when the object wasn't
1: readily apparent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so she's saying that um, she must be more attuned to people's suffering than their joy because it wasn't that easy to find Um objects of the meditation of really being in contact with what other people were had their happiness or good fortune about yeah do you have a sense and and you know I think a lot of us will lean towards one Brahma Bihar or another some may be more uh, feel more natural and that may also change depending on the circumstances of your life and other things too do you have a sense of of that? I mean, was that a surprise to you, or is this something that seems understandable? Or?
2: Well,
4: I've never done it before, so <coughs> I don't know if it's different than it would have been in a later time. I mean, I looked for things where, mm-hmm. that I saw as good fortune, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, sometimes I would just sit in the emptiness and then something would arise where i said, say, oh, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But to genuinely be finding people's joy and, and feeling that all day long was a very difficult thing to do. It just wasn't that, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I recognize that I might not quite have it when I was thinking about Bill Gates and <laughs> it was more filthy rich <laughs> and, uh, anyway it was a, it was
1: a, it was a challenge mm-hmm. yeah well the, one thing that is always an option with any of these practices rather than cycling through large numbers of people is to you know work with one person or with a small number of people you know just for future reference um did you try the gratitude practice at all? Yes, I did. Well, what was that like? That was much, much easier. Mm-hmm. Because you know, that was, I
4: knew what I
1: was grateful for. It. Yeah. Well, you know, I would just encourage you to, you know, maybe this is something as you are in the world, or even just on the rest of the retreat. I mean, we'll be going on to Upaka, so if you want to go on to Upaka, that will be next. But it'd be interesting to see, you know, in a month if you if this is something you start noticing more.
4: Yeah, I hit that thought. Yeah. I thought I
1: wanted to notice people's joy more. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And any other comments on that?
0: No, my my suspicion also is that moving back into your normal life that you probably will be seeing joy more, noticing it more. And it's also something you can work with your with your partner as well to help you identify that when you see it in, in the world.
1: Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, there are those people also who don't really um, express that a lot, and yet we can maybe understand something about their life and see good fortune that's in their life that um, we're maybe extrapolating a little bit. But, you know, there is... It's kind of unfortunate. There's a little bit of a cultural taboo to not be so forthcoming and talking about our own good fortune because it sounds like bragging, or you know, might cause envy in others, and so on. And it's it's kind of a shame in a way because there's only a small circle of people sometimes that we can really share that with safely. And so it's you know that may be part of it too is that people just don't share it that readily. Thank you.
5: Michelle? I have two questions. Um, so with each sitting I'm going through the sequence of beings and it things like the same people are coming up with each sitting, so it's pretty kind of repetitive and at times I feel like there's a little bit of boredom that sets in. And also um, with my the mind, there's like this effort and a little bit thinking that seems to fit in where I'm trying to sure I'm not missing anyone on my list or, you know, trying to think of people that um, I should, you know, do practice for. Um, and there seems to be a lot of, can we gets kind of tiring, so when that comes up, can you kind give me some guidance and help to deal with that? Yeah. And my mm-hmm. second question is, um, can you talk a little more the leader and the need asking for the present?
0: Mm -hmm. Go ahead (laughs) Go ahead So the first question or comment question was that she was working with Mudita and finding that moving through the category of beings that she was finding the same people coming up in different categories and so some of that led to a feeling of boredom and then we did know Michelle she was on the month long so we know that she went maybe to future planning and began to make a list of the people to be on that, uh, on Vedita. But, but it's a good question. And my question in return would be uh, who, who are the people coming up? Because some that that's come up in different categories, right?
1: Were they in different categories, or was it just the same people in the same categories? Same people, the same categories. Yeah.
0: I see. So so if you had, say, two people in the, the neutral category, you wouldn't get a third or a fourth? You would get those same two? Um,
2: I mean, a lot of them would come up, I mean,
5: occasionally would have like, a name that, or a wow. you know, face that comes up with a lot of them, like, like you know, family members or friends, um, you know, I mean, all kind of came up in the same, different cities.
0: Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, well my, my first impression is, in that instance, if I were sitting in your spot I would probably uh, then try and do a deep dive with one of the people in the category I mean really try to penetrate into really use your concentration on their joy and feeling the mudita so again you're not generating mudita but by concentrating on their joy um, really seeing mudita arises and, and to what extent because I, I think that's kind of what's happening, so I would probably approach
3: it that way myself.
1: Well, were you experiencing modita yeah. arising at all, or what? You were, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there can be a tendency to have the same people come up over and over because we have a certain circle of people in our lives, and that's not necessarily there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. If it's getting kind of dry and flat then I might wonder if you were kind of you were cycling through in kind of a fast way or a way that you weren't maybe having as much connection with the individuals and, and um, what was specific about them in the different Brahmaviharas. viharas uh, and this is where like the visual can become helpful. Like what we might um, orient towards somebody obviously like for compassion where they're suffering versus mudita where they're having something some good fortune those would be different even though it's the same person it'd be a different situation for that person so that's where even with the same person the content is a little bit different I mean it would be fairly different for those two So I don't know if that would make a difference for you at all. Yeah, and then as Stephen said, to to maybe do a deep dive. Like, um, one of the things I've been noticing, I just made some notes based on some of the interviews, and and not just for Mudita, but I'll just summarize here, is that I'm kind of seeing three things coming up. One is that people are, um, whatever the bravihara is, there's emotions that are coming up that are sort of in the way of that Brahma Vihara, and so people are working with those other emotions. So, you know, kind of working that area. And then people are also working like that edge. So with Mudita, maybe if there's somebody where it's it's kind of not that easy to feel the Mudita, and maybe there's even a feeling of some jealousy or envy, that becomes then an edge to work, where we're really working the purification aspect of the practice. So again, if we're going through through the list quickly, it's it may that may not show up as easily. And then the last thing is to actually be in contact with whatever the Brahmavihara Vihara quality is. So um, so if you go deeper with somebody that might be where it might be a little more complicated and maybe it's not as clean or the muditism is accessible, that can be a way to sort of work that edge of um the purification of heart kind of edge does that make sense
0: and Your second question is about the one near enemy the grasping for the pleasant and again the near enemies another way we can look at that is what might we confuse for the vihara quality so if if grasping for the pleasant it might be something that we confuse for mudita for empathetic or sympathetic joy. It could be that we are uh, sort of mining or only seeking out the pleasant experience uh, that we want to latch onto. So if we were, we were in contact with another person, we might only want them to talk about pleasant things mm-hmm. rather than unpleasant things. That somehow it might make us feel a little better. And I also, I mentioned last night, one of my th- thoughts had been that it, maybe had to do with people faking being, like if you're, if you're sharing joy and I'm not actually feeling mudita and we're friends, and I sort of say, oh, isn't that great? You know, it's kind of a fake way to show mudita, but I can't generate it kind of a real way. But sometimes people will do that, you've seen. So I, I'm not quite sure exactly what that points to. I think there's, do you have any
3: thoughts on Yeah, well,
1: we're, that? We, we have to remember that we're doing these practices like we're doing now a whole day on mudita which is, you know, part of we're doing this as a cultivation as an intentional exercise, which is, you know, the purpose of a retreat and doing a practice intensively. But in life, we're just out there encountering people and beings and so on and we don't know if somebody's gonna you know, we're gonna have lunch with a friend and they're gonna be suffering a lot or they're gonna be sharing the greatest thing that just happened with them yesterday. We don't really know. And so it's not like we can really, that responsiveness of the heart is going to depend on what situations are presenting themselves. So in that way, I think with Mudita, the the danger is that um, because it feels kind of nice, I mean, if we can really be in touch with it, now we're having lunch with our friend and they're trying to tell us about something difficult that happened and it's like, well you know, what about this that just happened? Aren't you happy about that? And so now we're kind of trying to make the good thing come up because it feels better.
6: To us.
1: To us. It feels better to us to be in contact with that person's happiness than it does to be in contact with their suffering. Does that make sense? So we start kind of looking for only the pleasant and and diminishing the reality of the suffering that is... Is a part of the human experience.
0: Where Tina's point is well taken that that in reality, what would be happening, perhaps, is that mudita might be arising when they're sharing their joy, and if they go into something difficult, you're seeing their suffering and compassion may arise. That that right. may be the reality of what happens in your experience. But as Tina said, we're we're narrowing this down, trying to do a, a very well. We're doing a deeper dive with with one brahmavihara, which. Really, in some ways, isn't quite the way it's going to function in your life.
1: Right. So that's where the the near enemy becomes, where we start <laughs> really looking for this and try and try and make it appear where the situation isn't really calling for um, mudita. Does, does that makes make sense?
6: Yeah. Dave, uh, I, I find that for me a great actual question is working with animals mm-hmm. because with mm-hmm. people. There's, you know, so, um, storylines. Is of, it of wholesome or unwholesome? But animals are just animals, so I don't, I don't, I don't have to wonder whether it's a, a, a wholesome cat or an unwholesome cat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so And so, and, and, and so, it's, and so today when I was doing yoga practice, I mean, what what cued it was when I was walking up the drive from a walk outside. There was that gorgeous black and white cat outside, which is such an honest experience that oh, yeah, you'd be happy. You know. <laughs> animals deserve to be happy too, right? Sure. So, yeah, so it so seemed it's like cool. it was an easy entry point, rather than going and then later I went on to other things that were more challenging. But sure. it, it seemed like it was just smoother. Sure.
1: Right. So he's talking about how um, with animals, it's very easy to see their their joy and their happiness, and so it's a great entry point for mudita. And yeah, I, I was actually petting the cats today too and somebody came by and I thought, you know, we're going to have to start taking numbers here.
2: <laughs>
1: like, am I hogging? You know, am I am I taking too much time with the cats? <laughs> but yeah, they, especially I mean, when an animal is really happy, they just are so it's so obvious and it's so um, contagious.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, that's the thing. Yesterday, Tina was petting the cats. We, we went for a walk petting the cats and I can see the cat or hear the cat purring. So the cat's happy. I can see Tina's joy at petting the cat, the cat happy. So I can see her mudita, and I'm having mudita for her mudita. <laughs> <having a cat>. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a
1: daisy chain. <laughs> so, so yeah. but, but I didn't have to do anything.
0: I was just standing there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the passive mudita. Uh, we could all stand there, and the
1: cat is like the hub and it's just a chain <laughs> of all of us looking at each other's mudita. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and then we realize the cat is planning this and we start getting suspicious (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) well I think I think Laura had um, a few things in mind in having these cats come and live here
0: (laughs) and that cat's name is Pom Pom
1: yeah, well, if, if he has a number of names, and and we were told all these different names that the cat has been given, and we just well, I liked Pom Pom the best. So if he, we if we he,
0: asked the cat, and the cat thought
1: <laughs>
2: respectable but kind of cute.
1: And the other one, the little um, tabby, is named Rascal.
2: Rascal,
1: although he's just such a I
2: think his face. or something. I'm not sure like he was named right. don't <laughs> what, what we shift gears here. Okay. <laughs> 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 the cat suta. <laughs>
0: so I'm, I'm going to be talking about Upeka. Upeka uh, is normally translated as equanimity. And before I go into that, I want to read a quote. Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over again to annihilation, can that which is indestructible arise within us? And that's from Carl Friedrich Durkheim, The Way of Transformation. So in talking about Upaka, and I think Tina was just mentioning that she appreciates all the Brahmaviharas, and I shared with her that Upeka is my favorite. So I'm not sure you're supposed to have favorites, but it is. Um, Upeka is also talked about as balance, and one of the functions Upeka has in the Brahmaviharas is it helps to keep the other Brahmaviharas in balance. Because we've seen where there's ways where the others, the, the metta, loving-kindness, the kuruṇa compassion and even the mudita <coughs> empathetic joy can be out of balance for the situation. It can be, it can be uh, inappropriate, essentially. And so, when we talk about balance, ordinarily we would talk about it as having a sense of an inner scale in our personality, and we have a sense of how much is the right amount, how much we deserve, how much other people deserve, of whatever it is. And when that scale gets out of balance, not in our favor, we do a variety of things to equal that balance. So this would be a balance that's more of a, uh, it's a doing balance, it's a uh, control balance. You know, it, it, we're, we're doing something to try to affect the balance. And the balance, what's right and what the right balance is is based upon our own personal sense of what we think we should be entitled to. And I'm not talking about that kind of balance in equanimity with Upeka. I'm talking about the balance that comes again from your true nature. This is an inherent quality. And by when we say inherent, we mean that these are qualities that you're born with. You don't have to get them from anywhere no one's going to give them to you. They're within your consciousness, and they just need sort of the right invitation to move forward. And the more that they move forward, the more that they become activated in a way that can be useful in your spiritual unfolding. So another way we might look at upekah as really almost being a kind of a deep acceptance, without concept, without control. And Pekka is very helpful in life because it helps us to stay more balanced in the ebbs and flows of life, the ups and downs that we can face. And it can help us by being more, more balanced, not being as reactive when we see or feel that the balance is out of skew for us. The other Brahma Viharas have the potential to want to change people. The, the compassion in particular, we can really want, when people are suffering, we can really want that suffering to change in a particular way. And that may be how we feel the compassion is showing up. But this Brahma Vihara, and I think the reason that I say it's my favorite is because I think it had the deepest impact on me when we did the retreat with the side out. Um we, we did the two-month retreat, and in doing these brahmaviharas, we did them to the point of jhana, so sort of to the point of absorption. So really deeply, uh, just in a unified consciousness with these qualities of our true nature. And just the balance, the, the um the inherent sense, really, that everything was all right and somehow it was perfect exactly the way it was. And it's a really strange, to the mind, it's a strange experience. How can that be possible? How can things being just the way they are right now be perfect balance? It doesn't make logical sense, and yet that is the experience. So it doesn't mean that we can't effectuate and get involved in change and make change because you know I'm not talking about the use of wisdom and wisdom will come in in terms of how we function and express our true nature which may affect changes. I'm just saying there's a certain perspective that it has that just everything is in accordance with where it should be. And it's it's just a a really interesting, interesting brahma vihara, and it helps us. Can also help us develop patience, because if we understand that there's a natural unfolding, a wise, intelligent unfolding, that maybe we can't see all of in this very moment, it allows more of an easefulness, more of a restfulness that we can have. That somehow this is working. Planets are orbiting, and somehow this is all unfolding the way it's supposed to. One of the phrases, I'm going to jump ahead, uh, I I actually like the traditional phrase here, which is, all beings are heirs to their karma. And I'm not really going to get into a discussion of karma, because that's a big discussion on what exactly that is but I think we all know the term well enough to know karma is, is a sort of a cause and effect to karma. If we behave in a certain way in society, we might get arrested and might go to jail. There's a cause and effect of a certain kind of behavior. So in the same way, there's that balance. And I find this to be a really uh, a great phrase for me because, as I mentioned earlier in the retreat, with the phrases, I... I reduce it down to the one word, and, and the one word, and this, this phrase to me is heirs, that everyone is, we're all heirs to our karma. So what's happening, it, there is a justice to what's happening to us. And it's really an interesting quality, and um, uh, this was particularly helpful for me at the time of the retreat we did. Uh, I had children, two children, who are now in their thirties and doing very well. And when we did the retreat, uh, I don't know, 11 years ago or something, that wasn't the case. Uh, and my son was having a lot of trouble and was, uh, he had been, had, was under 21 and had, had three DUIs, drinking while intoxicated, driving while intoxicated. And the next time he got one, he was going to go to state prison, and this, he was like 20. And, as a parent, there was just nothing I could do. I mean, I certainly could he didn't live with me. I could certainly give him lots of advice about not drinking and driving. But fundamentally, if he he chose to do it, my hands are tied. And this practice really helped a lot to, to take him as an object and really, really deeply penetrate that he's the heir to his own karma, and to realize this may be exactly what he needs in this lifetime to learn a really important lesson, a lesson that changes something in him, that going to prison is the only thing that does it. And who am I to know better about that, to, to interfere with that? So it was a really revolutionary practice in that way. I mean, fortunately, he's not gotten a DUI since, and his life has improved quite a lot, but it was really an important feature for me to take that on. And part of the the, heirs to karma isn't just, like in his instance, seeing that there were negative things happening in his life, behaviors that might lead to this, we might call negative karma. Well, it's also the positive karma. It's the good karma. And part of that is, if I'm using him as an example, what's his karma for potential in this lifetime? What's the highest functioning, what's the greatest gift that he has to offer in this lifetime. That also is part of what I'm getting in touch with through the, the equanimity, through that balance, through that, uh, you know, the understanding of, again, the good and bad karma, the, the equilibrium that comes with upaka. And so it, to, to me, it's a really powerful practice and I would really encourage all of you to take it on tomorrow and explore it for yourself. I think if you've, some people have had a little trouble with one or another of the Brahmaviharas, I think this is a really important one. And again, this is one where, in my feeling, this is like if the other Brahmaviharas are sails on a sail, sailboat, this Brahmavihara, vihara, is the rudder somehow is guiding the whole ship in one direction or another. There's some kind of balance, understanding, wisdom that comes through this Brahma Vihara. At least that's my felt sense of it. So I certainly would encourage people to do it. Any comments before I go on to the... Yeah. Um,
1: you know, this, this can be a hard one because well and you'll talk about the the near and far enemies and all of that Um, so looking at what is the proximate cause for Upaka is really seeing seeing things as they are and so to me Upaka is the wisdom practice of the Brahma Viharas And, and in that it's you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a bitter pill. And I'll just say that, like, to give you an example from my own life, when I had my health issue, and, you know, thank goodness for having spiritual practice because, I, you know, I won't tell you what the condition was because to me that's just something I want to keep private. But um, about 30% of the people who have it kill themselves because the pain's so bad. And, you know, I, it's like, I can really get how that would be possible without a spiritual practice. And, you know, there were people who would say to me, well, you know, aren't you asking, well, why is this happening to me? You know, you're a Buddhist teacher, and you're a good person, and you aren't doing harm, and why is this happening? And literally, it never really was an issue for me to ask that question. Why is this happening? I never felt like I was a victim I never felt like I mean there were it's not like I was fully enlightened the whole time, so I don't want to give you a wrong picture. There were plenty there's a lot of suffering. There were times when I wasn't at my best. But that was just something that didn't come up because I really have a deep belief that even if I don't know why this is happening, I actually do believe in karma. And I can just hold that you know, and Steve and I also believe in rebirth, so this, you know, makes the whole thing a little bit more understandable. But um, if I look at human history and I look at all of what's happened and all of the awful history of humanity, who did all that? I mean, if one believes in rebirth, there's nowhere else to look except here. You know, unfortunately, I, I do think humanity's evolving. But um, there was a way I could just accept that somehow this was a burning off of karma. So it never really, um, I never felt like it was, it, it gave me a lot of peace, actually. It gave me a lot of peace of just being able to, um, to not know and to trust that there's, there is a just universe, even if I, from my individual perspective as a human, can't understand all the workings of things. That can I have a, a kind of trust in the grounded being that there's, there's a lot that I don't know and that I'll, I won't ever really know. So, um, I mean, that's... Technically, that's the hardest place to apply this with yourself, it's pretty easy on the difficult person. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard unless they're having really good fortune. But this, to me, is is a way of um, it's brought me a lot of peace. I'll just say that.
6: Gloria, could,
2: could you speak
4: more about you and issues of racism yeah. and poverty and major um, experiences that
0: many of us. Right. Yeah, and and, and I think so, so. The question is about upaka relating to racism and sexism and poverty. Yeah. Do you want to comment?
1: Yeah. Well, and and you hadn't gotten to the near enemy, but this is where the danger of a practice like upaka is the near enemy, which is indifference.
0: And and, and to be clear, the, the near enemy is something that one could confuse for the brahmadihara. So one could feel that they are in touch with equanimity when, in fact, it's indifference.
1: Right. So, like, if you look at the history of of Buddhism and Buddhist countries, um, the idea of karma has been used to perpetuate a huge amount of discrimination.
0: Um, And and the caste system. The caste system. If you look at
1: India, even today, untouchables, and people look at, while they were... They deserve that. It's their karma, and so they've got this really, um, really rigid, uh, institutionalized discrimination that is kind of chalked up to karma. So this is where I mean, to, it, to me, the um, the Brahmavihara of upekka doesn't mean that we don't act when things that are unjust are occurring. So this is really where socially engaged Buddhism to me fits in. And in like in countries like even in Thailand, like, you know, I've heard stories about Buddhist families who will sell their daughter as a sex slave to buy a refrigerator. So I mean I hate to say it, but even now within Buddhism, um Karma and other things. You know, of course, it's an inferior rebirth to be born as born female.
0: In the Asian countries, as it can be a belief.
1: So you I'm know, sure. these are things that get justified, unfortunately, by something like this. So, I mean, I don't know if this is answering your question. Maybe you'd like to comment well, on it.
0: I think I had one thing, and I think the other, the other question, or the other area that comes to mind also is passivity in response. I mean Tina was talking about the engaged some of the engaged Buddhism that's going on but there's also there has been historically a orientation towards passivity in the buddhist culture believing that that was the right thing to do rather than there there's a road to navigate that's between action and inaction it's it's where where is the wise action versus where is the action that's driven by things like hatred and by um, you know, really the personality distortion. So it's you know people like Martin Luther King Jr. were people who could could find a way to recognize the reality that there was racism and also find a wise approach to engage it that actually effectuated change. So uh, again, uh, I don't think we're asking, answering your question directly, but I think we're trying to kind of put it in a Buddhist context. Um, could you share with us your perspective on it?
4: Well, I just didn't want it to be left at that um, point of
2: karma and acceptance. Yep. Right.
1: And seems to be yeah. Right. This yeah. is, and this is why I asked about the talking about the near enemy of indifference. and you know I, this is to me why all four Brahm together are important because when we see suffering mm-hmm. and the perpetuation of suffering, of which discrimination, oppression, things like that are a form of, um, of cause of, of harm that causes suffering, it doesn't mean that then we just say, oh, well, it's happening, so let's not do anything about it. You know, there are times when just because we have uh, whatever view we do about how do these things come about, I mean, why is there suffering? That could be a whole retreat to really explore within Buddhism, is there an answer to why is there suffering? And, you know, I don't know that I'm wise enough to really give that talk. But but
0: the point you're making making is that that there is the possibility of acting out of the compassion. There is the point of wisdom and compassion combining together to take action that people can take, that's appropriate and wise, rather than just egoic, uh, sort of knee-jerk reactions, which usually don't end up helping the situations.
1: So. Yeah, the, the possibility of equanimity doesn't mean that um, that within Buddhism there isn't a place for acting to improve, to, to reduce harm in the world. And to me, the two aren't incompatible. They're very compatible. So, again, I, if you have more you'd like to add, I'd, I'd love to invite you to, to share that.
0: Thanks, Claire.
1: But it's, it is, I mean, this is why, I'll, I'll tell you, I went to the three-month retreat at IMS, and, and the teachers had introduced the Brahmaviharas Viharas over the three months. And, and like the last week, Joseph Goldstein came out, and, or maybe it was the last two weeks and introduced Upaka and there was like almost a riot in the room. It was
6: <laughs> I was sitting
1: there you know like wow, what happened you know but it was around this whole issue. It was around the same this edge of Upaka and this is really the danger of Upaka is it turning into indifference So this is, this is the line that we really walk of um, is there a place of equanimity that doesn't turn into indifference?
0: And also action and passivity. Yeah. Because there has been so much of an inclination towards passivity in Buddhism.
6: Yeah. David? I, I was wondering if, um, in the alternate phrase, where at the end it you um, yeah, we accept them as they are? Shall we use the word accept? Because accept always has a kind of rationalization. You know? I guess I'll just have to accept it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So instead of using accept, I was wondering what you think, and how using the word see... Yeah. maybe see things, that, you can see things the way they are is the point at which things begin to change because mm-hmm. well, yeah, <coughs> so we're begin to fight racism and sexism and gender right. bias and a variety of things right? so what, what we're trying to
0: do is we're trying to see the truthfulness of things mm-hmm. we're trying to see the accuracy of things right? rather than seeing what we're putting on it in terms of our delusion and our defilements we're trying to see what's the clarity what's true here and that's really the way, so yeah, mm-hmm. if you, again, with all the phrases, to find a phrase that works for you based on your perspective, but again, we're trying to find, th- there's something about the truth, and there's something about <coughs> the universal balance that's happening, that we can't see, the forces of karma we can't know.
1: Yeah, to me, if I think about, well, what is enlightenment? You you know, there could be a long conversation with all of us sharing what we think enlightenment is. But from a practical standpoint, I kind of think about it that that for the, the fully enlightened person, nothing bothers them. I mean, no matter how awful their circumstances were, they might not like it, it might not be pleasant, but it wouldn't bother them. And to me, that's kind of the pinnacle of equanimity is that we're not dependent on circumstances for our own peace and our own um, knowing what we are. And, I mean, it would be an amazing place to be where that (coughs) was one's reality, where it wouldn't really matter what the circumstances were. And that, to me, really is this, that's what um, Opaka is really all about this equanimity in the face
0: of anything and and there still could be the movement of compassion and wisdom to action to change things Right. even though one is not uh, traumatized by events there still could be a wisdom of there's a rightness that's beyond personal here that needs to to be changed or affected yeah so shifting back, uh, the far enemy, which we can see as the opposite of the brahmavihara vihara here, uh, would be resentment, greed, anxiety about the uncontrollability of phenomenon. So that would be the opposite of the equanimity, where, again, the, the traditional phrase is far enemy. And in the sequence of beings, <clears throat> this starts with the neutral person, then benefactor, then friend, then difficult person, and finally self. So isn't that interesting? We work through difficult person before we come to ourself. Any ideas why that might be?
4: We have more difficulty accepting our own pain and suffering.
0: Right. We have more difficulty accepting our own situation than we would the difficult person. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now ultimately, really, this comes back to the, the Four Noble Truths, that We're going to suffer, and the uncontrollability of phenomena is just a part of the human condition. And so is there a way to meet that such that we can have equanimity? And we may still want to take action to change things. But that's different than what our own internal um, response is.
0: And you can see the alternate phrases that are on the uh, on the sheet. Uh, again, uh, Davy mentioned that maybe we all accept things as they are, etc. And, and again, it's fine to work the phrases to find the phrase that's yours that matches what you're feeling, which is very fine to do.
1: Yeah, and, and like for oneself. <laughs> I mean, this is where. Uh, is there a way of meeting the uncontrollability of circumstances in such a way that we can have peace? That's really what this is kind of pointing towards.
0: So, any
3: questions? Mm-hmm. Still not about how we look. At this. Are we looking through people that we know with neither of either suffering or happiness? Or are we perhaps seeing that the Brahma Maharas arise within us, like compassion and yet this is still the overarching
0: sense. So the question is about uh, applying this, sort of how to, how to apply this, since uh, it may seem a little, little challenging to grasp that. Um, the, the way it's done is to, for example, starting with a neutral person, if you yeah. picture or how you, you hold the person in your mind's eye, then if we use the phrase, I like the all beings are heirs to their karma, so it's really a having that person up and really having the phrase "all beings are heirs." So this person is heir to their karmas, and just working with that, with the phrase and the person, and uh, you may find that the dynamics of their life or their life as you suspect it to be begin to be revealed about you know both what we might call bad or good karma. And so there's a way of just recognizing that they're heir to their karma, their situation, um, there's some relationship <laughs> to karma, and it's just an understanding of that uh, that there's some uh, workings that are outside of our no- knowledge.
3: Or, or
1: to you know to to use another phrase. Um, I like something like, I care about you, but can't control your happiness or unhappiness. And this is where, I mean, I'm sure we all have family members, friends, others in our lives who, from our own position, we might be able to see where they, they could be happier, but because of their own inner workings, it's not possible for them. And... It may cause us a lot of pain to see that, like Stephen was talking about with his son. I mean, that was a really hard situation that wanted, and to keep trying to do things and wanting to do things and knowing it could be different and seeing the way that it could be different, how to make that possible and all that, and knowing that you can't live that person's life for them, you know? And that's really, it's it's a profound... um, to me, there's a way where we really get in touch with the profundity of the human condition and really the, the four noble truths that all beings are going to suffer and we even the Buddha couldn't stop beings from suffering. Only through the teachings is that really possible. And that's really what this is about, is to really feel, you know, and this is where the Upaka to be done with the compassion as part of it. If it starts getting dry or loses that, then it really is going over into the indifference or even the cruelty or you know other aspects that are can have an edge to them. And so, so this is where we start with a neutral person. Like again, we'll take the mail delivery person who. You might wave and say hi to each day and may not know that well, but, you know, you can easily have meta for that person. But at the same time, there's no way that we can really make that person be happy, even if we really wanted to. If we can't even make our close family members be happy, um, there's a way where there's a real profound acceptance of the Four Noble Truths in that. So this is where starting with a neutral person is, you know, it's kind of an, an easier place to start because we don't have as much attachment to whether, to their situation.
0: And we also can see what our habituated patterns to uh, trying to help people or trying not to help people. And so we can start seeing how our personality is driving some of these actions we're taking and motivations mm-hmm. we have. Because it's based on our own our own sense of things rather than the reality of the other person's situation, probably. And so that starts we start getting more discernment to realise and again as Tina saying, then there's the opportunity for wise action, for compassionate action, or no action sometimes <coughs> is what's compassionate. But we start having a better sense of what's what how things are, the reality.
3: There's, there's some,
6: something about the mechanics that I'm not understanding. It seems that it's starting with a neutral person, you're starting with that being the first one, is more of an
3: opportunity to, to, uh, to get stuck on it. Uh, we're less likely to know too much about the neutral person. That's yeah. why I'm not understanding why you start with that.
0: So the mailman if you play this out or the, or the guy who's fixing his car is your neighbor, kind of, how do you work it if you don't know a lot about these individuals? Well, think of it this yeah. way. How, how invested are you in that person? I mean, how much are you really trying to control their happiness or to keep them from being unhappy? Probably not very much.
6: Well, very little, so right. where does it go from there? No. So,
0: uh-huh. Well, it's recognition. You're seeing that you actually can't effectuate much of their happiness or unhappiness. And it's the one where you probably don't have a lot of investment. That's right. So so about.
1: again, just to go through the mechanics, you have a person, so the sequence is designed to start with the easiest one. So if for you that's not the case, you can you can do it in a different order. But this is what's suggested classically. So you are relating to the neutral person and seeing in some ways that you you can't control that you can't really affect you can't cause and make sure their happiness you can't you know there's nothing you can do that's really going to produce that and be guaranteed they make that happen and so can there be an equanimity with the reality of that Right. Can there be where you would like... I mean, this is why we do all of the other Brown Viharas first. Yeah. That, you know, yeah, you'd like for them to be happy and you can have yeah. a loving... You know, you can feel meta towards them and other things. And you can't make that happen. And can there be equanimity in that? And so with a neutral person, we don't have that much skin in the game. Because we, I mean, we just we don't know them that well. Whereas you start with your spouse, you know, or your children, or your you know somebody that's very very close to you. It's a lot harder to have more have more of a sense of really getting that. As much as I want to, I can't really control that person's experience of their life.
0: Which you can up in the method. you can meet their suffering with Karuna. So, there are ways and when they have joy, you can feel mudita. So, there are ways you can be supportive in a way that is helpful to them, but you need to see the reality, it helps.
1: Yeah, so that's where you know we it's encouraged to start there, and then benefactor usually, benefactor is somebody that we don't have. You know, it has been good to us, but we may not have a real personal relationship with. And then, you know, we you sort of work through up stuff. to yeah. yourself, which is considered to be the hardest. Does that give you a little bit more of a sense of yes, how totally it would? It is. It's a, it's, it's a challenging practice. I mean, personally, I think upaka is the hardest one. Even though a lot of times in the <coughs> teachings it said that Medita is,
0: you have to try and find out. Yeah. Okay, comment question.
3: So I was trying to get uh, a feeling tone of Eka. It was easier in the first three to have a real uh, feeling uh, tone to the expression, and so my question is. Since we've gone through the first three and have had various levels of beings that we've wished well toward and have they removed suffering from and wish that we could <coughs> continue, we've expressed <coughs> that we care about those beings. So the care seems like it's still there, mm-hmm. and yet there's a real leggo of, of the outcome, uh, which is based on karma and their their own life and not ours. Is
0: that uh, right? Yeah, I think, I, I think what you're saying is accurate. I, to me, again, I, I was trying to point to the feeling tone, which is one that everything feels to be exactly in the right place, balanced exactly as it needs to be right now. So <laughs> somehow, even though there's imperfection, it's perfect, just like this.
1: Yeah, I would say it may be a little bit differently. And, and one of the ways for me that I can get in touch with Upaka is that in the in the actual practice, in the concentration practice that we teach of Anapanasati with the jhana progression in the fourth jhana, Upaka is really the only feeling tone that's left. Mm-hmm. And it's not an emotion. It's really a sense of... Um, of um, it, it's like there's a wisdom of realizing that from our own individual perspective, we can't actually know everything about what's going on. So for me, I almost take it as more of a sense of um, of the mystery.
0: It sounds almost like you're saying some kind of faith also.
1: Yeah, I mean, faith. the word faith is normally has more to do with religions that have a god, so I right. wasn't using that word. But there's a way for me and where it's me. like there's there's yeah. a mystery in the universe, and um, I mean, it does point to some kind of basic trust of of beingness, and even <laughs> if I can't. Like logically understand what is going on, which like happens to me constantly. I look at the world and I think, how could this possibly? Like, why is this happening? You know, why is there suffering and it doesn't make sense, and and so on. I actually do fundamentally believe in the goodness of the universe, and so there's something in that. It's not like I'm accepting that change isn't needed, and that I wouldn't undertake that but there's something about um, a kind of trust in the mystery of existence well,
0: and, it's, and it's trust somehow in your contact with that mystery that somehow right now in this moment in this contact everything is exactly in its right place There's just some tone of that as Tina said, in the jhanas from the fourth on to what we call the upper jhanas, five, six, seven, eight, that's one of the only jhana factors present. So it's one that doing the practice, we spend a lot of time with, so it's and and it allows a kind of there's, there's a lot of equanimousness in that when you're doing the practices, they're oftentimes outside your rational mind it doesn't make sense what you're doing mm-hmm. but yet it's it's happening exactly the way that the book says or your teacher says even though it's really illogical um, but yet it's happening so somehow th- this supports that somehow this is perfectly unfolding
1: yeah, and if there's, if it doesn't fit, feel like a fit for you to think of it as everything's in the right place, cause then there's kind of an evaluation about it. Like for me, I have it more, this is where for me the idea of, of the mystery of unfoldment, like I'll go back again to my health thing. When it was happening, I mean, I really couldn't understand anything good about that happening. You know, it just seemed like there was just nothing good about it. But as now with some perspective on it, I can see that so many things got cultivated in me that wouldn't have happened otherwise without such an extreme situation that, um, that I'm very grateful that our capacities have developed now and would I have chosen it? I would have never chosen it. But it happened and there was nothing I could do about it and there are now capacities because of that experience. So at the time I couldn't have made any sense out of it, but now there's a way where in a weird way I'm kind of even grateful. You know? So this is where I mean to me there's there's something about the mystery of existence that we can't always know why something's happening. And sometimes later we get to know and sometimes maybe our whole lives will go by and we'll never know. But can we still trust that there's something bigger happening, that we can, we can have contact with that mystery of unfoldment, that there is something. I mean, you know, this is part of, again, the, the precious human birth is, is the suffering motivates us to for liberation. And so if there wasn't any suffering at all, we probably wouldn't even be practicing. You know? And it's kind of unfortunate that that's true, but that's an example to me of the mystery. That that's something that prompts us to actually seek liberation, not in the circumstances and the external, but in something deeper that is beyond this body and this life and this personality.
0: And and, and remember, you're hearing a sampling of two. So really what... We'll see tomorrow is as, as you all take this on, what's it like for you? What's the contact like? What's the experience like? How would you describe it? Because that's what we want to hear. What's it like in your experience, in your words, with your lifetime, in your eyes, in your practice? And then you can tell us.
2: So
1: I think now that we've been through this, that quote's going to have more
2: impact.
1: <clears throat>
0: Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within us.